Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. This episode marks part one of a multi-part series focused on D-Day, June 6, 1944, Operation Overlord. And what better place to start than talking about Captain Frank Lilliman, the first American paratrooper to land in France that day. Now, Nazi Germany has been on a tear since 1939. And by summer of 1940, we would see the battle and eventual evacuation of Dunkirk in France. And this is one of those events that just has a lot of emotions tied to it. On the one hand, it was a miracle. 330,000 British and French troops made it out of Dunkirk alive when the odds were stacked against them. But this was also a retreat. And upon the completion of that evacuation, the Allies really lost any foothold on continental Europe. Not much later, in the summer of 1941, Germany would launch Operation Barbarossa, opening up a front to their east as they invaded the Soviet Union. And if you step back and have to assign reasons for why Germany lost the Second World War, it's hard to overlook this one. The decision to invade the Soviet Union would have devastating effects on the German ability to wage war. But at the time, in 1941 into 1942, Germany can really afford to focus all energy on the Soviet Union, and it's showing. The Soviets are taking horrendous casualties. Both sides are. And Joseph Stalin, the leader of the Soviet Union, starts pressuring the Allies, Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt, to open up a second front anywhere, alleviate some of that pressure. And you would see this over time. There would be an American, an allied invasion and fighting in North Africa, as well as Sicily and then Italy. And the fight in North Africa was never designed to win the war. It was was setting up for a larger fight. The same generally is true in Italy, Sicily and then mainland Italy. There was a shot in the dark chance that that could be the road to victory. There was the possibility that allied troops could make it north through Italy to kind of the soft underbelly of the German mainland or the German home territory. Not a strong possibility. And that wasn't really the focus of allied plans. Both of the, both of these theaters in the Mediterranean and then in North Africa are going to be setting everything up for the major fight that everybody knows is coming. The invasion of mainland Europe. Everyone knows it's happening. Both Germany as well as the Allies, everyone around the world expects this to happen at some point. It's a matter of when. And when depends on a lot of things. Most notably, when will the Allies be ready? Now, Stalin and the Soviets and a lot of people around the world want this to happen as soon as possible. Yesterday would be the time that Stalin wanted it to take place, right? But it takes a lot of time to prepare and execute an invasion of this scale. And it's not just the planning. You get into things like there are plans for American divisions to take part in this operation 
that haven't been trained yet. There's a requirement for aircraft that haven't been built. I mean, not only are they not physically in England to start taking part in the invasion, we're talking about equipment that has yet to even be manufactured in the United States, let alone make their way across the Atlantic Ocean to England and then eventually into combat. So there's all sorts of timelines tying into when the Allies will finally be able to launch this assault on mainland Europe. The planning, of course, starts very, very early. And eventually we start eyeing summer 1944. And as we get closer, dial it in a little bit to May and June of that year. Now, a part of the operation is going, well, there's really two parts of the operation codenamed Overlord. You have the seaborne landings, troops hitting the beaches up and down the Normandy coastline under codename Operation Neptune. They'd be supplemented by an airborne operation. And this wasn't the first use of airborne troops by the Allies in the war. It's worth noting that the 82nd Airborne jumped into Salerno and Sicily, but those were regimental sized jumps. We're talking, you know, 2,000 or so soldiers, which is no small feat. But for D Day, the plans call for two divisions, roughly 13,000 paratroopers. That's on such a different scale than a regiment. 13,000 to 2,000. There are certainly lessons learned and, and, and ways that they can improve that they can take from one to the next. But it's, it's almost a totally different type of operation, right? The use of airborne troops was debated during D-Day. I mean, these were some of the elite warriors in the U.S. military. And there were a lot of questions about when do you use the ace up your sleeve, if you will. There were considerations of pushing the paratroopers much further inland, closer even to Paris. This didn't, it's worth noting, this didn't make it into some formal late stage planning. It was one of the ideas thrown out early, early in the process. But the idea was push these paratroopers so far inland, let them fight autonomously like they're designed to do. And they will so distract and disorient the German army that they won't be able to coordinate a counterattack. But if you're dropping off an airborne division or two that far into France, that far into occupied territory, I mean, call it what it is, you're sacrificing the entire organization for time. That was scrapped. The idea of using paratroopers at all was almost scrapped. It was, the, the challenge was recognizing that we might only have one shot at this. And what happens if we fail? The amount of men, material, munitions that have made their way across the English Channel by the early morning hours of June 6th, if that stopped in its tracks, we might not get another chance to do this for a year, two. I mean, you're talking about rebuilding Allied militaries at that point. And one of the reasons folks were a little bit hesitant to right away, Eisenhower as one of them to sign off on the use of the airborne troops was maybe we're going to need them later on in the war. Maybe it's best to preserve their strength for say an assault on Berlin. At the end of the day, as D-Day approached, the decision was made that this is the decisive battle. If we can't gain a foothold in France, 
there's not there's not a good chance there's going to be an assault on Berlin. We might have to sue for peace. This whole Western Front in the Second World War could be over in June of 1944. So the decision is made that the 101st Airborne and the 82nd Airborne, totaling just over 13,000 soldiers, will parachute and take gliders into Normandy in the early morning hours of June 6th. Now there's... Paratroopers are used in such a different capacity. And one of the differences, if you think about the troops that are going to hit the beach in a few short days, in their landing craft, their Higgins boats, you're going to have a couple squads, even up to a platoon at times, coming out of that craft all at once. When they hit the beach, they've got their squad mates to their left and right. There's pros and cons to that, of course. When paratroopers jump out of a plane at a few hundred feet, usually at night, and land, they can be by themselves. They have to find a way to consolidate into some reasonable fighting force, a team, a squad, a platoon, maybe a company or battalion. It takes some time to organize into a force that can complete the objectives they're going to be asked to do on D-Day. One of the ways we go about mitigating that is not just dropping paratroopers all over France, but aiming for what we call drop zones, DZs. The DZs are specified areas that are identified through intelligence well before the actual jump. They're relatively flat, relatively open, areas that could maybe land 1,000 to 2,000 paratroopers in a few short minutes. If possible, away from water, the risk of drowning, of course, very, very high when you're tangled in a parachute and loaded down with 100 plus pounds of equipment, away from trees if at all possible. There's only so many of these across the peninsula because Germany knows this is what we're trying to do as well. So many of these fields would be flooded. Others would have obstacles placed in them. But the Normandy countryside is already broken up with hedgerows. Hedgerows are a combination of earth and shrubs and brushes and trees that are borderline impenetrable. I mean, it's almost like a brick wall, how thick this thing is. Bullets can still fly through it, so it's incredibly deadly, but it'll, you know, it, it can stop a vehicle in its tracks. And later when we start talking about gliders, it will destroy gliders if they hit them. So these Norman fields are cut up by these hedgerows, and American intelligence identifies a handful of drop zones, six to be specific. The 101st Airborne will utilize drop zones Alpha, Charlie, and Delta, and the 82nd Airborne Oscar, November, and Tango. Now, if we can just get these paratroopers to land in their designated drop zones, that increases their odds of finding one another and forming a decent-sized fighting force right away. To help the planes that are coming overhead, eventually flying through enemy anti-aircraft fire in the dead of night in probably the most adrenaline-packed day of their lives, the pilots are going to need some help. That help is going to come in the form of people on the ground before the first wave, marking the drop zones. That task falls to American pathfinders, like Captain Frank Lilliman. Lilliman is leading the pathfinder company of the 101st Airborne Division. And a newspaper article talked about these folks at the time, because think about this. The airborne landings take place hours before anyone hits the beaches. So what do you call the people that go in before the first wave? And it's this newspaper article from the time that talked about some of these pathfinders, and they referred to them as the tip of the tip 
of the spear. And I think that's hard to top. On June 5th, 1944, after a few false starts, Captain Frank Lilliman and his team of Pathfinders get the call. It's go time. They start loading their equipment, really strapping their equipment to themselves, and they're handed a letter. General Dwight Eisenhower the Supreme Commander of Allied Expeditionary Forces, wrote a letter to be handed out to everybody participating in the invasion. And to me, this is one of the, just a very, very interesting piece in history, I guess I'll say, is what do you do if you're Eisenhower and you're getting ready to oversee the largest force in in your lifetime, leading it into the largest battle in your life, knowing, knowing that thousands, tens of thousands of these soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that you're sending into the fight are going to die. What do you tell them? What do you say? How do you get your message across? Eisenhower does it in a letter and not to go down a rabbit hole or to get too far off track here. A few years ago for a gift, my wife got me one of these original letters that were handed out on D-Day. Um, for you watch for anybody watching the video, it's framed here behind me and is probably the coolest thing I own. It's such an important part of the story of D-Day. I thought it was worth reading the entire letter rather than trying to paraphrase. It goes like this. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the Great Crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hope and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940 and 41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Imagine the emotions. Being a soldier loading into an aircraft like Frank Lilliman, hearing that letter, reading those words, and preparing to be the first to jump into the Normandy sky, kicking off Operation Overlord. Lilliman and his plane full of paratroopers take off into the dark night in radio silence and without lights on for the element of surprise. They head out over the English Channel, and they make a a turn towards France. And 
if you look at the Normandy beaches, it's kind of like a lazy L. You have Utah sticking up a little north to south, and then Omaha, Gold, Sword, and Juneau kind of following um, west to east. But the peninsula is relatively narrow, and the plan for the Pathfinders and the follow-on airborne divisions is to come in a little bit through the back door. Rather than fly right over the invasion beaches, they're going to sneak around to the north and west and come inland parallel with the beaches to drop the paratroopers. Of course, as they come over enemy territory, there are searchlights, there are anti-aircraft guns, there are lookouts for aircraft. They're making quite a bit of noise. The aircraft turns on its red light, signaling to the paratroopers in the back, get ready. They drop to 450 feet as Lilliman and his crew prep their equipment for one, one last check of their equipment, hook up to the static line for their jump. And as the aircraft hits 400 feet over what they believe to be their drop zone, that light turns green. Lilliman is the first out of the aircraft with a cigar chomp between his teeth like he did on all jumps. And the military jumps are again done under static lines. There's no pulling of a parachute. As soon as Lilliman comes out, the the ripcord is pulled for the for his uh for his shoot and which is good because at 450 feet over enemy territory with anti-aircraft fire coming in every direction, you're not looking to spend a lot of time in the air, not a lot to uh, make decisions at least. So coming in 450 feet off the ground is really low for a jump as well. Lilliman hits the ground, looks at his watch, and it's 12.15 a.m. June 6, 1944. The first American paratrooper has landed during Operation Overlord. But there's not a lot of time to celebrate. Lilliman and his team, they're designed to go in before the first wave, but not that long before the first wave. Their brothers from the 101st Airborne Division are about 30 minutes behind. Lilliman and his team quickly recognize that they are at least a mile away from their designated drop zone, which is a theme for D-Day. And this is where we see a trait of junior, of United States junior military leaders that was on incredible display in the Second World War and still is to this day. It's the initiative at the lowest level. It's people like Lilliman making decisions on the spot based off the information they have rather than waiting for direction from someone who may or may not give it. Lilliman decides we can't make it to that new drop zone, can't make it to the the intended drop zone before the aircraft arrive overhead, so we're going to find one here. They find a suitable location among the Norman fields and start laying out their lights. These, they're not on at the time because it's still... They're still operating under the cover of darkness. Not all of the German defenders know that the invasion started at this point. So they lay these lights out that will be turned on at the last minute as kind of a beacon for the incoming aircraft. And while they're doing that, Lilliman sees a church steeple in the distance. And this is going to be a perfect spot for what's called the Eureka Rebecca system. It's a, it's a homing beacon. They can flip it on, and the aircraft flying out over the English Channel, headed towards Normandy now, will be able to pick up that signal and kind of hone in on it to kind of, you know, think of it like pulling the aircraft in the right direction. They all know where they're going already. This is just designed to kind of 
help, right? That's what the pathfinders are doing. They're helping these pilots in what is going to be probably the most chaotic night, chaotic and, and dangerous life of their night. Let's say that the right way. The most chaotic and dangerous night of their lives. The pathfinders are trying to provide a little help, make things a little bit easier in that last moment. The Eureka system they're going to place it in the church steeple. They head over that direction. And when they knock on the door, a priest answers. And I love this. Lillyman has a lieutenant who speaks French and tells the priest who is terrified at somebody knocking at his door at midnight in the full uniform. He says in French, you've been liberated, which I have to imagine felt good to hear after a few years of Nazi occupation. But now it's time to wait. Lilliman and his team have this drop zone marked. And as they're waiting for the remainder of the, or the entire 101st Airborne Division to arrive, one of his scouts reports back they've spotted a enemy 20 millimeter anti-aircraft gun. It's close enough to the drop zone that it could wreak havoc on the inbound paratroopers just minutes, minutes behind at this point. So Lilliman and a crew head over to this farmhouse. When they get there, they find a German farmer who kindly points them in the direction of where there is a German soldier sleeping near the gun, kind of um, available if needed, which is interesting to think about, right? There's been planes overhead. There's paratroopers on the ground, yet the word didn't make it out to everybody that the invasion was starting. Or um, what's an anti-aircraft gunner doing still sleeping between the waves of the pathfinders and the main the main airborne force. Nonetheless, Lilliman and his team dispatch of the fighter, dispatch of the soldier, uh, destroy the anti-aircraft gun and move back to their positions near the drop zone. Just in time to start hearing the faint sound of American aircraft in the distance. At 1240, they start to turn their lights on and at 1257 a.m. on June 6th, the first wave of the 101st Airborne soldiers, the paratroopers from Lilliman's unit start landing. The invasion's begun. No turning back now. Now, after these landings around one o'clock in the morning, Lilliman had to get right back to it. Remember, they're, they're still fighting all day, but not everybody had come in yet in terms of the airborne troops. Remember, we talked early on about these were going to be both paratroopers as well as glider-borne troops. And the gliders had some advantages, some disadvantages and some advantages. The paratroopers could only carry in what they had on their person, whereas you could load up quite a bit of equipment, even small howitzers, in the back of gliders. So the paratroopers would never have as much ammunition and weapons and medical supplies and food and tobacco and everything that they would want. You always want more. You just don't want to always carry more. The gliders are going to be able to resupply these paratroopers after, you know, at this point, 18 hours worth of fighting. The, the gliders would come in in a couple waves, one before daylight, just a few after, a few hours after the paratroopers. And then there'd be a second wave that would fly right over the invasion beaches later that night. Um, as sunset neared, as well, served a couple of purposes. One of them was resupply, bringing in a lot of munitions for the paratroopers on the ground, but also bringing in new units, um, glider borne units. 
but their landing wasn't necessarily any easier. And I think it'd be argued was even more challenging than the paratroopers. If you're looking for a place for a paratrooper to land, who's coming down generally, generally straight down, right? It only has to be big enough for a person to land. You know, they could land on a spot the size of a car and they'd be just fine. The gliders are released at altitude and come down. They're not powered and the pilots have to steer these. I mean, they're, they're gliding into a field where they can land, which even in the best of conditions, I had to, I have to think would just jolt you all over the place. But remember, we're talking about these Norman fields that are separated with the hedgerows. If a paratrooper fell into the hedgerow, not to downplay it, you can die if you land in a tree while you're during an airborne operation, but it could also just be really uncomfortable or frustrating. If a glider runs into a hedgerow, it could kill everybody on board. I mean, it's like running a glider at a hundred plus miles an hour into a brick wall. And these gliders are made out of plywood. So it's not like they're designed to take heavy impact on the nose, especially when you start adding in that these gliders are carrying Jeeps, howitzers, pallets of ammunition. There's a lot of weight back there. And these gliders need, they need a good situation on the ground in order to land a lot of space to land, a lot of flexibility, left, right, front and back. So Lilliman is tasked as a pathfinder with finding on the ground, good landing zones, LZs, instead of the drop zones used for paratroopers. But I mean, he's got his work cut out for him. There's just not a lot. And many of these areas, if they're not already flooded, have railroad ties stuck down in the ground, sticking, sticking straight up, designed for this, designed to just rip the gliders apart as they come through. He will find a few suitable locations and marks them a little bit differently. They'll use um, smoke pots and um, things to mark during the daylight hours. And the 3,900, part of the 3,900 strong glider troops started to come in many of them using his location, using the location that Lilliman marked. As some of the gliders start to land, a nearby German position opens up. So these gliders are relatively defenseless as they're coming in, not relative, they're entirely defenseless as they're coming in. And then of course, after they land, there's the exercise of getting out of there while under German fire. They didn't see this position that was well camouflaged. So Lilliman runs out into the open to help his brothers that are just landing in the process. He's shot as he kind of recognizes that he's been shot and he turns, he catches shrapnel to the face. It drops him. And while Lilliman would survive these wounds, his D day was over. He was medevaced back to England, but missing any amount of the fight wasn't really what Captain Frank Lilliman was interested in. So he, before too long, went AWOL away without leave from the hospital, made his way back over to France, joined his unit, and continued to fight with the 101st Airborne until the Germans surrendered in 1945. He would survive the entire war and would retire a lieutenant colonel in 1968. And then in 1971, Frank Lilliman would pass away. Now, for being the first man, first American paratrooper to land during D-Day, Lilliman had, did have some luck on his side. He landed on flat ground. He landed on ground at all. 
That's more than many could say. There are quite a few paratroopers that landed in streams or flooded fields and had to fight for their lives as their equipment was helping to drown them. There were soldiers that would land in German positions or in trees and have to either get cut down if they even survived or climb down some way. And finally, there would even be soldiers that got hung up on church steeples and had to wait helplessly for a few hours in hopes of being discovered. That's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.